Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, what can we do about pollution? I live in Pittsburgh, which is south of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Katie Bryant and her husband, Wes, moved to Pittsburgh in 2011. He was in the military, stationed at Fort Bragg. She was starting a career as a microbiologist. And Pittsburgh just happened to be a great point for both of us. We both commuted to work, and it was a small, quiet, beautiful community, and we kind of pre-planned to start our family here and settle down. So by the fall of 2011, you know, I found out I was pregnant with my first baby, and I had neighbors coming to me saying, oh, well, just don't drink the water. You're not supposed to drink the water around here. Couldn't really tell me why. And so I did my due diligence, and I got a water quality report. That report from the town water system showed there had been a problem with a chemical byproduct of the chlorination process, but it had been fixed. So at that point, I thought, oh, people are just, you know, they just don't understand and they're blowing this up. And at this point, I was in an industry that was heavily regulated under the FDA. And so I just had all confidence in our systems. I was like, the water industry clearly has regulations as well. They're following them. They fell out. Now they're back into specs. I don't need to worry. And so I went about my pregnancy working out, drinking water, eventually breastfeeding my children and not really understanding there were unregulated things that were not on that water quality report that I was never warned of. Um, And it wasn't until... I believe it was 2018, 2019, that I realized something major was happening in Pittsburgh and being basically brushed under the rug in silence. And I had to get involved. When we drink the water, breathe the air, or work the soil in our communities, we expect it to be clean. The United States has regulatory agencies and pollution standards meant to protect us, but they sometimes fall short. And when that happens, nationwide data show that places populated by people of color or in poverty are most likely to suffer the consequences. This season, Top of Mind is finding fairness. We all want to live in communities free of harmful pollution. Who's responsible to ensure that? Is it fair that some communities bear more of the burden for pollution we all contribute to? Virtually everything we do in our daily lives creates waste, from the tailpipes of our cars to the packaging on our purchases. What would happen if more of us took personal responsibility for the pollution in our communities? Well, today we're hearing stories of people tackling that question. As soon as we drove in, I fell in love with Pittsburgh. You know, it's a big hub for folk art, folk music, and then the river. I was like, this is beautiful. Pittsburgh is a small town with a population of about 4,000. It's right on the Haw River, which runs over 100 miles through a fast-growing stretch of North Carolina. By the time it reaches Pittsburgh, where Katie Bryant moved in 2011, the river is carrying storm runoff and treated wastewater from several of the state's largest cities. 
It is also the source of Pittsburgh's drinking water, which did not worry Bryant for the first few years she lived there because water quality reports from the town showed no problems. But then in 2014. I had heard murmurs that, you know, a professor had come from NC State to come and actually sample the river. And so I reached out to him and he confirmed that, yes, you know, he found 1,4-dioxane, he found PFAS, he found bromides, and he felt compelled to do the right thing as a human being, not just as a scientist in, say, Pittsburgh. You have to talk to upstream people and get them to stop dumping whatever they're dumping. And he gave me some warnings of things to do in terms of keeping my children safe, like no baths. Um, If you do take a shower, try to take one quick, which is alarming to hear. But when I called my water treatment plant, I was told that, you know, these concentrations are so low, there's no real scientific proof that this can cause harm to your children. And at that point, I did not have the money to put in a giant filtration system in the home that we had just purchased. This is more than just putting like a, a, a Brita filter on your tap. Absolutely. It can range from as little as like $500 to get you up and running to 5000 depending on what system you get. And so at that point, I couldn't really make changes for my family immediately. So I would try to get water, buy water when I could afford it here and there. And when she couldn't afford it, they just drank tap water and hoped for the best. Now, fast forward five years to 2019, Bryant reads in a news article that Pittsburgh's drinking water has 14 times the healthy limit for PFAS. It's called per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. So the easiest way is PFAS because nobody wants to say that. And when I saw the numbers, just I couldn't sleep. I had all sorts of things running through my head all the time. What have I done to my kids? What have I done to my husband in between deployments when he's chugging this water, you know, working out and then gulping it, you know, taking three showers sometimes a day. (laughs) Like, what have I done or what has this water done to my family? PFAS are actually a family of thousands of chemicals with similar structure. They don't occur naturally. Chemical companies developed them for waterproofing, and they're everywhere in cookware, food containers, makeup, clothing, even firefighting foam. And PFAS don't break down over time, so they build up in the environment and in our bodies. PFAS can affect every single system of your body. It affects cholesterol, It affects your endocrine system, so thyroid disease. It affects the digestive system. It can cause reproductive issues like infertility. You know, it's being linked to cancers, rare cancers. Even in children, studies have shown that it potentially can cause learning disabilities or developmental delays. Now, PFAS are not new. They're found in water and wildlife all across the country. But the Environmental Protection Agency has only recently begun to more closely regulate them. Katie Bryant was appalled to learn that environmental watchdogs with the Haw River Assembly had raised concerns about PFAS in Pittsburgh's water a decade earlier. Essentially what happened is everybody kept passing the buck and it was everyone else's problem. It was just getting ignored. Was the water in Pittsburgh not in compliance with federal regulation at the time? No, we were within federal regulation, technically. Anything that they had to actually test and screen for, we met that. Now, PFAS is tricky um, because it was being discharged upstream of us. 
So we have Reedsville, Greensboro, and Burlington. And those are all hubs for the textile industry. It is the responsibility of those municipalities to know their industries and know what's on discharge permits. Now, if you're not putting it on your discharge permit and you're not alerting the town, then nothing's going to be tracked. Um, these industries put this stuff directly in, basically, you know, down their drain and it goes to a water treatment plant that is ill-equipped to remove these contaminants. It's, it's very expensive to remove them. And because they can't remove them, after the wastewater is treated and dumped into the river, it then essentially goes downstream to my water treatment plant that is also ill-equipped at removing these. And then it comes straight out of my tap. So we're in this situation where it's like, who is supposed to remove them? Who's responsible? Is it me at my tap? Or should it be the industry removing it before they dump it down their drain and send it to our water treatment plants? Um, and that is something that I can't get straight answers on. People cannot agree who needs to be responsible for this waste. So what was your first act of advocacy on this issue? The first step... Um, that I came up with was to reach out to my town commissioners. Um, and I only had one that responded and I decided, okay, he's the only one that responded. He's the only one that seems to care about the water. I probably need to work to get him reelected. And I did, I campaigned for him and got him reelected. And at the same time, you know, our mayor that was on the seat outgoing started a Pittsburgh water quality task force. And I was put on this task force that same year to assess what was going on and to come up with plans for the town moving forward. When things just kind of slowly kept going and nothing major was changing, I realized I needed to be the one to actually start sending things out to the public. And I, I thankfully met my co-founder and we started Clean Haw River. And it, it started with just a little Facebook page, but we started getting info out to Pittsburgh mommies. Like, you know, if you think about who runs the homes, typically it's moms. And so we were like, we have to try to reach as many moms as possible. And so that's what we started doing. With what, with what kind of message? Here's what's in the water. Here's who's polluting it. And here's how you can protect yourself. That was in 2020. Clean Haw River's public awareness efforts helped build pressure on the town to install a system that is now filtering most, but not all, PFAS out of the drinking water. And the EPA has announced plans to crack down on two of the most common chemicals in the PFAS family. These new regulations are great. I'm happy. But let me just be clear here that industry are not dumb and they no longer use these two things. They just changed their carbon chains and cut a couple of carbons off and called it something different. And, it, and it's not covered by the new regulation. Exactly. We need a class regulatory standard, not playing whack-a-mole where it's like, oh, well, we regulated these two. Now we've got, you know, 10,000 left. How does stuff end up in our water without having first been tested? I mean, is like in with the, with like the <laughs> FDA, you have to like test to make sure a drug is safe before you can just start putting it out there. Is that not the case for chemicals that end up in discharge? No, it's not the case at all. There is no precautionary principle being practiced in the United States. That principle alone would do exactly what you said. It would require 10 years of data showing that whatever PFAS molecule you want to list 
is essentially safe to the environment, to our waterways, and to you. And at that point, we could then manufacture it. But that is not what happens. We have 10,000 PFAS because they've been created and used. Do you think we have 10 years of data on each of those? Absolutely not. So, Katie, I'm hearing you say that um, it's not perfect, That, but it also seems like that now your town is in a situation where they actually are monitoring and filtering out even 80%, whereas they were doing nothing eight years yeah. ago. It seems like kind of a 180. It is a 180, and there's been more collaboration and a push to make change. Our advocacy group, on top of our own town angels, the Haw River Assembly, our, our river keeper is Emily Sutton. And there's a lot of people behind the scenes making this happen. And the researchers too, and their data coming out has facilitated a lot of change. Like we were basically guinea pigs in Pittsburgh. We've been monitored by Duke University um, and now by NC State. And they showed easily within a year monitoring us in the fall and the spring that what's high in our blood is high in the river. They showed a correlation there. I have been overexposed. My husband has been overexposed. My children have higher PFAS concentrations in their blood than the average adults in the United States. And I don't know what that means for them. Nobody can tell me. We just know that their risk for cancers and certain systems failing or going wrong is higher for them. Um, so there are wins and there are a lot of people trying to make change, but it is a slow and very aggravating process. What advice would you have for people in, in any community in this country um, wondering what, if any, responsibility they ought to or could take for, for their own safety, whether, whether it's water or air or, or soil? Like what, what have you learned? What, what is the advice that you would offer? Well, I would say first things first is to realize that a lot of our organizations and departments that are supposed to protect us have been gutted. The CDC, the EPA, they have become, you know, politically driven. You know, they get cuts all the time based on who's in charge and what is happening. And so that's something that we all have to recognize, whether we're for them or against them, that that cutting and gutting prevents them from actually doing really good work. Second, I would say getting involved in your community and showing up, even if you just put like one or two, you know, town hall meetings on your agenda for the year, just going and listening to what's happening because you will be surprised what goes on behind the scenes and gets brushed under the rug that you might have knowledge on or maybe some interest in. You might be that puzzle piece to the whole problem that your town may not be equipped at dealing with. That's what I wish everybody could do is to, you know, put a little bit of good back into their communities. Katie, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Katie Bryant is co-founder of the grassroots advocacy group Clean Haw River. Now, a lot of factors can contribute to a community experiencing problems with pollution. Size, location, politics, but they often have something in common. If we were white and if we were affluent, we would not be in the situation of being polluted to death. Studies conducted by government agencies, university researchers, and advocacy groups consistently find 
the less white and less wealthy the zip code, the more likely it is to have polluted air, water, and soil. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. I believe in my heart and in the work that I do that the health challenges that my community face is a direct result of the pollution coming from surrounding industries. I'm Teresa Landrum uh, from Southwest Detroit 4217. Both my parents were diagnosed with lung cancer. My mother had four different kinds of cancer. And then in my 50s, I was diagnosed with cancer. We have nasal cancer, brain cancer, lung cancer, liver cancer, bladder cancer, throat cancer, all every kind of cancer you can name, I can find somebody in my community who has had it or a family member had it or neighbor had it. 48217 is the zip code for Landrum's neighborhood. It's known as one of the most polluted in all of Michigan. So it's something Landrum mentions often as an environmental justice activist. Here in Southwest Detroit, we are surrounded by heavy polluting industry. We have more than 42 major and minor polluting sources coming from surrounding factories. We're um, surrounded by two steel mills. We're also home to the only oil refinery in the state of Michigan. And at our rec center, you can actually, if you've got a good baseball arm, you can throw a baseball and hit the refinery's tank farm that is located right across from our only public school, Mark Twain School for Scholars. I can walk out of my front door and within five minutes, I can be in front of one of the heavy polluters. Teresa Landrum has lived in 48217 her entire life. I actually live on the same street that I grew up on. I just live a few houses down from the home that my parents owned. And when I grew up, the air was always stinky. When people came to my community, they said, oh, it stinks out here. Not only that, our air was brown. It was black soot that would fall on our cars and on our houses. And it was not unusual to see our parents and neighbors out every day, hosing the house down, washing the soot down the driveway into the drain. Why did your parents decide to live there in southwest Detroit, knowing that while you had nice trees and a streetcar, you also had a lot of pollution or at least a lot of industrial polluters? They did not know. You know, the history of uh, Detroit and and most northern states is that the Great Migration after World War I and World War II, many Blacks came north seeking better employment and jobs. So our parents did not know that the the industries that they were working at and to put food on the table would be uh, one day the very industries that would impact their health by the pollution that they were emitting. They moved here for a better life thinking that this was a good place to be. But if you understand Jim Crow, after slavery, Jim Crow was instituted by our own government, the veterans affairs, the banks, the real estate companies, the insurance companies, and we were redlined here. We were not allowed to live in greater Detroit. And the area that I live in, it was one of the first areas that would allow African-Americans to actually purchase homes. 
my parents bought their home on a land contract because they were not able to procure a loan from the banks. As a result of that history, 48217 was, and continues to be, a majority Black neighborhood. Landrum was a teenager when she started to realize the stinky air was more than just a nuisance. Down the street from being one of uh, the young ladies that went to school with my brother, she died of cancer in her early 20s. And then one of the high school classmates that I went to school with, he was a year ahead of me. He went to college. He was sent home because he had cancer. Then another young man, he was sent home from college because he had a lot of challenges and and actually had a mental breakdown. So I started to see different things in my community that I didn't quite understand. As an adult, she got involved with the Neighborhood Association, the United Citizens of Southwest Detroit, and started to learn how their pollution problems were part of a larger pattern of environmental injustice. It was at one of those meetings in the 2000s when things finally clicked for her. We were at St. Andrew and Benedict's church, and they allowed us to have our monthly meetings in the basement. And we had a young lady by the name of Rhonda Anderson from the Sierra Club. And she came to us and asked us, did you ever think that your health problems and the health challenges you guys have faced and are going to face is coming from the air that you breathe and the industries that emit pollution and dangerous chemicals into the air? I I was taken aback. And the suspicions that I had were now being uh, made concrete in my mind. We didn't know that we could object to that pollution being showered down on us. And she taught us how to organize. She taught us how to watch the air to see if it was black, brown, or orange that day. She taught us to take pictures of how many trucks came through our neighborhood from the industries to and fro. So she was really one of the pivotal changes that happened because she taught us to have a voice, how to go down to city council and object to our city council, giving industry and businesses the right to open up right across from our homes. We didn't know we could do that. We did not have any idea that we could actually become powerful. And I think it's fair to say you have been using your voice in a powerful way uh, as a community, but you particularly, Teresa Landrum, in the last 20 years, you have been an appointee to environmental justice committees at the state level there in Michigan, have testified in hearings, have been featured in documentaries and news articles. And why do you continue to live in southwest Detroit, in that same neighborhood, knowing what you know now about the pollution? I continue to live in Southwest Detroit 48217 because I love my community. I love what it has to offer. I love what it has given me over the years. And that is a village. That is the support to be a productive, constructive citizen in society. I'm often asked that question and I give them the question back. Why should I have to move? Landrum and her neighbors are now fixtures in environmental justice work across the state of Michigan. They've had some success preventing the city from giving tax incentives to businesses that will bring more pollution to the area. But industry attracts more industry. So the residents of 48217 are up against their longtime identity as a hub for heavy polluters. 
Landrum says existing air pollution standards are insufficient to protect a neighborhood like hers. Because we are not addressing cumulative impact. We have roadside pollution. We have stationary pollution sources. And then we have so many uh, companies that are right together. And each company under the current policies and statutes and laws are allowed to emit, like, say, sulfur dioxide, so many hundreds of tons a year. They need to consider cumulative impact instead of allowing each company and each chemical to be evaluated on an individual level. And they should take health impact assessments into consideration before they grant a company a permit to install or renewing an operating permit. We have the highest rate of asthma hospitalizations in the nation right now, right here in Detroit. That tells you something. Our white counterparts do not experience what we experience. If we were white and if we were affluent, we would not be in the situation of being polluted to death. So I want the United States government, my tax dollars, to work for me just as well as it works for my white counterparts. What motivates you to keep going given the huge amount of improvement that you feel still needs to happen? Getting up every morning, I have to ask God to rejuvenate my mind, my body, and my spirit. But um, I want to fight for the future. We always say children are our future, but are we protecting our future? As we look at this climate crisis that we're in the midst of, and I'm talking about worldwide, look at who's impacted. It's the children, it's the pregnant moms, it's people of color, it's people of low income. I'm fighting because I don't know what the future holds, but I want to make it better for my children's uh, children. I want to make it better for my neighbor's children and their children. That's why I do it. I do it because I love my community. I love my neighborhood. I love my city. And I love life. Teresa Landrum is a lifelong resident of Southwest Detroit. She's a community organizer, an environmental justice activist, and currently serves on two boards under Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer related to environmental quality and environmental justice. Thank you so much, Teresa, for sharing your enthusiasm and your work with us today. Thank you so very much, Julie. Okay, so there's a concept in economics that I think might be helpful here. An externality is the cost or consequence of an action that is not borne by the person who does the action. So pollution is the byproduct of humans making and consuming stuff. And often it's an externality because the people doing the making and consuming don't have to deal with the consequences of the waste they create. It goes out the smokestack or down the river for someone else to cope with. Even just think about your own trash for a second. Do you know where it actually goes? when the garbage truck hauls it away? You know, there's really no away. It's going to go into someone's community or someone's river or someone's ocean. So what if the producers of waste were more on the hook to deal with it? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Hey there. I'm glad you're listening today. Thank you so much for being with us. And I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about something really cool. 
a new podcast from BYU Radio, has just launched. Each episode's 15 to 20 minutes long. They're immersive audio dramas. Here's a taste. It's happening. It's happening! It's time for Kaboom! Original audio dramas full of adventure, wonder, and sometimes even... A dragon? A zombie? It's a show made for the whole family to enjoy together that will get you saying... How about that? You can do anything. You're kind of weird, you know that? Kaboom! Season 1 is available now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, it's so much fun. Be sure to subscribe. I've already done it. And now let's get back to top of mind. Imagine that every byproduct of life in your city stayed in your city. Trash, tailpipe emissions, contaminated water runoff. I think we would clean up our act quicker if our own community had its own incinerator or landfill. There'd be quite the grassroots movement to shut down those facilities and reduce the amount of waste that's generated. This is Judith Enk. I'm the president of an organization called Beyond Plastics, and I'm a former regional administrator with the Environmental Protection Agency during the Obama administration. These waste companies, whether they're locating an incinerator or a landfill, they look for areas that don't have political power and um, are essentially becoming sacrifice zones. And why? Because there's so much excess packaging, because of consumerism on the rise, and people not really being thoughtful about what happens with products and packaging that they buy when it's time to throw it away. Judith Enk's entire career has been focused on fixing this externality problem of pollution, figuring out how to get producers of waste to have more skin in the game. Because right now, companies like candy companies and McDonald's and Amazon, they flood our environment with so much packaging and they have no financial responsibility to take care of what happens to it afterwards. Extended producer responsibility laws, which we're now calling packaging reduction and recycling laws, will make sure that packaging engineers have to factor in what happens after the packaging is used. How do we make the packaging more sustainable? Can it be reusable? Can it be reduced in size? Can you use recycled material rather than virgin materials? And we're also trying to make sure that taxpayers don't carry the financial burden for waste. So the other thing these laws do is they put a modest fee on packaging and you pay based on how damaging your packaging is to the environment. And if it's refillable or reusable packaging, no fee. Who gets the fee money? Um, local governments to pay for waste reduction and recycling programs. This is a whole big paradigm shift. And I think a good example of what extended producer responsibility would look like is 10 states in the U.S. have mandatory deposits on beverage containers. They're known as bottle bills. I worked on New York's um, first bottle bill back in 1982. It was adopted. Very simple process. So you go to the store and you buy uh, 
a can of Diet Coke and a bag of peanut M&Ms, my favorite. And um, you are charged a nickel deposit on the can of Coke that you get back when you've returned it empty for recycling. But what about the candy bag? That just goes right into the garbage. And, and who takes, who, who gives me my deposit back? Who, who takes the can back from me? The store is required to take the can back and give you your nickel back. So I go to my supermarket every few weeks with a big bag of empty soda containers. And there's been innovation. I I feed the empty containers into something called a reverse vending machine. It's like a soda machine, but you feed it empty bottles and cans. You get a little receipt from it. And then when you're in the store, you get your nickels back. But how is that any better than, than me just putting that can or bottle into the recycling bin and having it go to the recycling facility? Because because of the deposit, you get a significantly higher recycling rate. And the material is kept separate and clean, so more is recycled. And then you also get this other co-benefit of less litter. If you walk around any bottle bill state, there are only 10 of them, you will not see a soda bottle or can on the street. People pick it up even for a nickel. And who's paying that nickel ultimately? Whoever the producer is. But then when Coca-Cola or Pepsi take it back, they also get some revenue from the recyclables, particularly the aluminum. It has worked beautifully for decades. And so we're not suggesting that deposits are placed on every type of packaging, but it illustrates that if a new law is adopted, that requires the producers to be responsible, they will find ways to make it work. The amount of waste we produce is such an illustration of the lack of environmental sustainability in our society. For instance, the United States is only 4% of the world's population, but the U.S. produces 12% of the world's solid waste. Break it down for us. What do you see as the main components of our waste problem that that we should be most concerned about? Well, I think the major problem is plastics, which is not surprising to hear from someone who works for a group called Beyond Plastics. Hmm. Plastics are made at petrochemical facilities, um, mostly in Louisiana, Texas, and Appalachia. And those smokestacks not only release large amounts of toxins into the air, but also greenhouse gas emissions. And then if you don't recycle the plastic, then it goes to a landfill or an incinerator. If it goes to an incinerator, you get greenhouse gas emissions from that as well. So recycling's the answer then for plastic? No, no, not at all. Um, hmm. Reduction reduction is the answer because plastic recycling has been an abysmal failure. The U.S., Plastic recycling rate is only 5 to 6% of plastics actually get recycled. And I just want to spend a moment explaining the process here. When you have a, um, a newspaper and you put it in the recycling bin, it'll get recycled into new cardboard or paper, not indefinitely. It only goes ar- around a few times. An aluminum soda can will get recycled into a new aluminum soda can. It's very different with plastics because there are so many different plastic resins, different colors, 
and over 10,000 different toxic chemicals are used in plastics. So if you think of your own home, you might have a bright orange hard plastic detergent bottle near your washing machine. And then if you go to your refrigerator, you might have a clear squeezable plastic ketchup bottle. Those two bottles cannot get recycled together. They're too different. That's why we have such a low recycling rate in the United States and in fact worldwide. So the solution to the plastic pollution problem is actually quite simple. Do everything you can not to use plastics because the vast majority of it will not get recycled. Mm. Are there some things where we absolutely need plastic, though? There is some use for plastics, certainly not in most consumer packaging applications, but some medical devices, um, car bumpers are made from plastics. They're lighter, so you get better fuel efficiency. Mm. But it's the single-use plastic packaging that is littering our streets. Things like plastic cups, plastic straws, plastic bags. Scientists tell us that within the decade, for every three pounds of fish in the ocean, there will be one pound of plastic. Most of that gets reduced to microplastics because it's exposed to sunlight and then wave action that is almost like a paper shredder. So one plastic water bottle can become hundreds or thousands of different pieces of microplastics, and that is all building up in the food chain. Are there certain things I could think about advocating for in my local community that might also be helpful for reducing waste? Oh, absolutely. And we've got a lot of information on our website, beyondplastics.org. There are a number of local governments that have banned plastic bags at the checkout. And then overnight, you see virtually everyone bringing reusable bags to the store. Eight states have banned plastic bags. Um, New York City just adopted a law that when you order takeout food, we've all had the experience of even though we tell the restaurant, you know, we're eating at home, we don't need the plastic utensils, we don't need the mountain of napkins, we don't need the straws and the condiments. The new law in New York City, uh, which will take effect soon, says that you only get all that extra stuff if you affirmatively ask for it. It's called skip the stuff. I think something that schools and parents should work on is um, for school breakfasts and lunch programs, most of the time children are served on single-use disposable plastic packaging. How about installing dishwashing equipment and purchasing durable real dishes and utensils for kids to eat off of? We don't have to do it perfectly. We just have to try to reduce. There's a, a whole movement called Zero Waste. And there's a great quote by a woman named Anne-Marie Banu. Uh, Anne-Marie says, we don't need a handful of people doing zero waste perfectly. We need millions of people doing zero waste imperfectly. So do the best you can. Don't feel guilty. It's not your fault. We don't have a lot of choice when we enter a supermarket. But if overpackaging and too much plastic is a concern, take political action in your own community. You can 
work on local plastic bag bans. You can work at the state level on state laws. This is an issue that is top of mind for a lot of people. And uh, we're seeing some progress. It's just not happening quickly enough. Judith Enk is president of Beyond Plastics, which is an advocacy group. She's a former regional administrator for the EPA, and she's a professor at Bennington College. Professor, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. You want to start? Shall I start? All right. I'm James Harker. And I'm Frederica Siren, and we are the Zero Zero Waste Family. Family. Very nice. So Frederica and James and their three kids live in San Diego. They've been calling themselves the Zero Waste Family for about a decade. They've got a documentary, a book, a blog. And we reached out because we wanted to know what it looks like when people take responsibility for their waste on the most personal level. We have a mantra that says that if we can't reuse it, recycle it or compost it, we just refuse it. Tell me how this got started for you. So this journey, Ash, has been a long journey. I've been an environmental writer for over 20 years, and I wrote about holding companies and the government accountable. But once I become a mom in 2006 to our first child, Isabella, I realized how much waste I were producing just because I had a baby at home. It's amazing. Kids, they come with a lot and lots and lots of waste. So I started actually thinking about individual action and that it is the government, it is the companies that has to take responsibility, but it's also us individuals who have to make our own individual action. I was really resistant to this at first. It seemed like, oh, I'm so busy, so much work, are we really going to make all these changes? But Friedrich was really smart. She introduced these kind of one step at a time, one little thing at a time. And once I got a chance to really take a breath, I really realized, wait a minute, actually, this is saving us a lot of money. The first step I did was I took the trash can from the kitchen and moved it to the other side of the house. And it was this really interesting psychological shift because you were so accustomed to throwing trash away in the kitchen. And so every time you had a piece of trash, you had to walk to the other side of the house. And it gave you this moment to think and reflect around what is this? Why did we buy this? You sit there and you have cans of beans and you're like, you know, we actually can buy dried beans in paper packaging. And then you've got that plastic pasta package. You're like, wait a minute, now that we think about it, they sell pasta in brown bags at the grocery store, don't they? And then you're in the bathroom, right? And you've got that shampoo bottle. And then you realize a lot of communities have available to them zero waste stores where you can take in your bottle for shampoo or soap and get it refilled. And you don't have to buy a brand new bottle. And so little by little, as we started having these small conversations about each item that we had in our house, we found alternatives to how we were used to purchasing them. You said that you're actually saving money. It seems to me like it would be way more expensive. You know, at the grocery store, a lot of times the stuff that comes in plastic is going to be cheaper than the stuff that comes in the, you know, compostable paper packaging, right? How are you possibly saving money? Yeah, it's a great question. And in fact, I I asked myself that question. Um, if you're buying, say, food in bulk, is that really cheaper than buying prepackaged food? And a lot of times buying food in bulk is cheaper. You actually are paying something for the packaging on all of these things. But it's also the fact that we invest in reusable things, things we can reuse over and over again. And that would save a lot of money. We had cloth diapers that we used on all of our kids. Diapers are not cheap. And uh, when you have three kids, that's going to cost you a lot of money. We say that we save about $18,000 a year, which is a big number. 
And that really comes from a bunch of different things. Some of this were lifestyle changes. Like I decided to, I took a job where I could work at home. So we were able to go down from two cars to one car. That both was a great uh, impact on the environment and savings in our pocketbook. Not everybody has the opportunity to do that. And we also started just changing our consumption patterns. One of the things that Frederick and I agreed on was that if we need to buy something from Amazon that will always wait three days before we make the purchase. Oftentimes we found an alternative in that 72 hours where we didn't actually really need to buy it because we found another way to get that, say from a friend or from in some other way, or we found we didn't actually need it as much as we thought. And so some of this was just about consuming less. Frederica, what was the thing that was the hardest to give up initially for you? Oh, I have to say in the beginning, my perfume and my uh, personal care. uh, And you have to understand, we became a Zero Waste family when Zero Waste was not even on the roadmap. We had to figure out everything on our own. Like I made my own shampoo in the beginning and finally my hairstylist said, please, I beg you to stop this. You look like a troll, a cute troll, but you look like a troll. So what did you do? Actually, my hairstylist came up with an alternative that she would let me buy the shampoo from her that was in bulk uh, in my own containers. And she actually made like a huge effort on it, uh, which I really appreciated. Well, you know, to me, like laundry is an interesting example, because what what many people don't know is is that many laundry detergents have microbead plastics in them, which is part of the kind of the washing agent. This is a big problem because these little microplastics go into our waterways and now into um, fish and other things that people eat. And so... Frederica came home and said, hey, we can wash our laundry with these soap nuts. And I looked at these things. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. There is no way that this is going to get our clothes clean. What is a soap nut? I don't even know what a soap nut is. I I had no idea either. And so soap nuts are these natural nuts that grow on trees. And they actually have enzymes that are the, believe it or not, modern day enzyme based laundry detergents have these same enzymes that naturally occur in soap nuts that grow on trees. And so you put about a half a dozen of these soap nuts in a small satchel, and you throw that in with your laundry, and as the water mixes with these soap nuts, it releases the natural enzymes from these, and it actually cleans your clothes. And it works. Well, the funny thing was that James kept taking his clothes and taking them to the dry cleaner (laughs) instead of doing it at home, because he just trusts me with the soap nuts. (laughs) At first, it didn't compute. So I did. I was taking my work shirts to the dry cleaner uh, service at work. And then she's like, how are you? uh, How come you don't have any uh, work shirts to clean anymore? (laughs) And I go to work and I find them hanging there on the door from the dry cleaner. I'm like, in plastic, may I add? And I'm like, fail, epic fail on my part. How were you doing Christmas and birthdays and I mean, your kids, you can, there is not a, there's not a toy you can buy that comes without, I mean, very few that will come without any waste attached to it, any packaging. Yeah, totally. So kids are a big challenge when it comes to living lower waste, right? And so part of what we do is we look for opportunities to buy used. The other thing I think about with kids that's really challenging when it comes to plastic is planning ahead for food. Kids are always hungry in the most unexpected times. And when they need food, they really need food. So a big part of this is about having like fun snack recipes that we can make at home and that we're really thinking ahead so that we're out and about that we've always got food uh, for them. And I'll say for the birthday parties, uh, we don't use any disposable cups or plates or anything. We actually have what we call uh, our party box. It's a box 
that contains um, cups, plates, and napkins, and even decorations for birthdays. And this box has become so popular that it's actually making the rounds in our school among the other students. Literally, the first party we had, another parent said, ooh, I really like that box. Could I borrow that at our birthday next week? And as Frederick has said, I think we've loaned that out like 40 or 50 times over the years. I think it is a misconception that living zero waste is a hard life. We didn't choose this lifestyle to complicate our life. We did this to uncomplicate our life. And our life is so much richer. It is so much uh, happier and so much easier in so many ways. What do you mean, Frederica, that your life is richer and happier? So before we went zero waste and we start making all those savings, James worked more than full time. And he was a very tired, overworked dad trying to just make ends meet and for us to pay our bills. Uh, once he became, he went on paternity leave and became a stay-at-home dad, and we and we had a lot less money. The, the, what we realized that that taking our kids out on the picnic or taking them to the beach was much more fun than taking them to the mall to go buy things. And so our, we became a much happier family. We're both home with our kids. We're always here for them. When they go on on summer break, we take our work with us and go with them. We are a close family who travel together, uh, spend our days together, and do um, volunteering together. Are these choices that would be within reach to to any American? You know, I'm thinking about people with, with lower incomes who are working multiple jobs, perhaps, who maybe don't have... Uh, land to grow vegetables on. They don't have a yard. They maybe don't have the ability to walk or bike to work. Is zero waste something that you're able to do because of a certain measure of privilege that you have? I feel like zero waste is available for everyone. When we started our journey, uh, we lived in an apartment. We had no money. And this is how, you know, we saved a lot of money. It is by, again, not shopping as much, not buying so much, not bringing so many things to the house. And I get it that, that not everyone can maybe bike to school or take public transportation, but zero waste is personal. You figure out what works for you and you take it one step at a time. No one can go zero waste overnight. We didn't, but find one change that you can make today and do that one. This is why I really believe this is accessible for everyone. Do you ever feel like it's maybe a little too little too late? What you, what you as one family can do? I, I would say that that will never be the case for me. To my dying breath, I will fight for the, this planet because from, this is my kid's future. Me and James actually spoke at um, our children's high school last year for Earth Day. And we asked the kids before we started our speech, how many of you are worried about the future because of climate change? And they all raised their hands. And then we ask them, how many of you feeling that adults are doing enough? And none of them raise their hands. This is the reality of what our children are facing. We, as adults, mess this planet up, and we have to take responsibility and clean it up. We cannot say, oh, the kids are here to save the planet and our future. That's not right. A big part of this is about allowing our kids to let go of this anxiety and feel like there is something they can do. There is steps that they can take to actually make choices in their life to, to save the planet and kind of be part of the solution. And I think it's so important 
to ground kids and give kids hope that they can do things because as much as responsibility as our generation needs to take, and I 100% agree with that, a lot of them are going to need to grow up and be part of the solution as well. And so starting them um, as their teenagers, like grounded and having a sense of identity that they're part of the solution, I think will bring the mindset for the future of coming, of being more responsible stewards of businesses or governments as, as they grow into those roles. Frederica Siren and James Harker are the Zero Waste family. They live in San Diego with their three kids. Frederica's book is A Practical Guide to Zero Waste for Families, and they're featured in a documentary called Zero Time to Waste. James, Frederica, thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you. Thank you. Top of Mind is a BYU Radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops and Vanessa Goodman, with help from Samuel Benson and me. Our sound designers are Brandon Lewis, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. I am so glad you are joining us for season three of Top of Mind, focused on finding fairness. In addition to full episodes tackling tough topics like this, we are excited to be sharing lots of stick with it conversations on the podcast feed this season. And we would love to hear your story. Tell us about a time when you felt challenged and you had the urge to get defensive, which is totally natural, right? But you chose to stick with that discomfort instead and see what could come of it. Tell us what happened. Our email is topofmind at byu.edu. And if you take a moment to rate and review Top of Mind on your favorite podcast app, that will help other people find us and join in this effort to become better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.